0: Hope you guys had a great week. Uh, We are going to be continuing our series here in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at judges. but Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your written word that has been delivered to us uh, through your spirit, uh, through various prophets uh, laid down in script and preserved for us to this day. Um, we ask that you would open up our hearts to understand it, uh, to apply it to our lives. We pray for those who will be teaching our children as well. And just thank you for this wonderful day that we can worship you together uh, in a free country. We pray for uh, Christians, brothers and sisters all around the world that do not enjoy such freedoms. We ask God that you'd be with them as they worship you as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. Hope you guys. Had a wonderful week in the Lord. Um, we had a a good week. I'm a little bit tired, so you guys try to keep me awake. Ask a lot of questions. I might need somebody to go refill my coffee here in a little bit. If anybody wants to volunteer, but uh, looking forward to this morning. We're going to be answering a question as we move through our lesson. Why did God choose Gideon? Is it because he was so buff? Is it because he was so good looking? So smart? Such incredible strategy, military strategy. We'll see as we look through the text. That's going to be one of the main questions we're going to try to answer this morning. His haircut. That's an interesting proposal. Yeah. So we're in the middle of a quarter called obedience and disobedience. This is part of a for what for us is a four year uh, study program where we're going through the Bible. uh, You know, historically, chronologically, we're looking at the scriptures, um, both learning how to observe, interpret and apply. Um, We're also trying to draw out apologetics as we're looking at the scriptures. We're doing systematic theology as we're looking at the scriptures and so on. Uh, We are in the middle of, in this quarter, Lesson 5. Last week we talked about Israel disobeying God. After the conquest, we'll do a little bit of review here in a second. We're going to be looking at Gideon this morning, how God uses (coughs) Gideon. And uh, so let's do a little bit of review, and then we're going to study the text and then try to apply the text. I hope you guys enjoy. I don't know about you, but there's so many it seems like every week I just open up the text. I start reading it. And sometimes I'm just like, man, why aren't there more movies made about some of this material? There's just so much incredible human interaction. One of the things I remember R.C. Sproul teaching years ago, I went through one of his hermeneutics classes. We taught it here at Cornerstone called Knowing Scripture. And he just says, the Bible is so fascinating. You know, he talks like a Columbo, you know, the Bible—it's just full of sex and
1: murder and intrigue—and
0: I'm like, really? I... And uh, and grace and mercy and God—and there's just so much interesting interplay. The Bible is one of the greatest books in the world, and I just love the way. As soon as you know, Sprout gets up there and starts, you know, talking about the Bible. I mean, he could be talking about bacon—you just want to do whatever he says. And uh, but it's true. There's just so much just humanity raw humanity in scripture and yet god meeting human beings in their raw humanity coming down and and having grace showing mercy we see judgment Um, we see the creator we see the creature lots of just incredible stuff so we've been going through the seven seas of history creation corruption we saw catastrophe in the flood we saw the tower of babel that's confusion and then we're kind of in this period that our curriculum calls confusion um, and then, uh, we'll be talking about Christ, his birth, both him on the cross and then consummation, uh, leading up to this point last week, we were began the period of the judges, um, and we left Israel last time, uh, they had forgotten all that God had done for them, um, and began to serve the idols of the Canaanites. Remember, does anybody remember last week, um, At some of these periods in Israel's history, uh, would Judaism have been the dominant religion? No. In fact, just like in India today, if you were to look at some of the statistics of India, you would find that Christianity is, what is it? I think the last stat was something like 2% are Christians, um, whereas you have a large percentage are are Hindu, Buddhist, and, and Islamic, right? This is the type of period that we're dealing with in much of Israel's history. Yes, they go through some cycles where there's some repentance. But in much of Israel's history here, you have Canaanite religion actually dominating uh, the landscape. And so in that sense, when liberal theologians argue that Jews were not monotheistic, you'll sometimes take a religions course at your junior college or college, and they'll say Ju- Judaism is not a monotheistic religion. They're polytheistic. In one sense, they're right, because Jews did not exclusively worship Yahweh as they were supposed to. They would worship multiple gods, and they, fa- they fell frequently into the worship of Moloch and Baal, the Canaanite gods, as we're going to see again today. <clears throat> However, what your liberal theologians aren't telling you is that's not the way it was meant to be. That there that if you look at Judaism in the way it's prescribed, there is one God, and they were only to worship that one God. But the way Judaism is described, <clears throat> they definitely did fall into idolatry in the worship of false gods. Um uh, so there's there's been several judges that when we get to Gideon that have already been raised up by God to lead the people. Uh, But then they, there's these cycles where they continue to fall back into idolatry. They face discipline at the hands of God and, uh, and, and God brings in the pagan nation. So we're going to see one of those cycles with Gideon. What we're skipping over, unfortunately is Deborah. We're going to leave that to you guys. I said, we're maybe we'll talk about Ehud today. I'm sorry. I lied. Ehud would be a great, guide a study go back and read ehad on your own if there's any movie makers in here please make a movie about ehad um it's very interesting tale okay so that's kind of in a nutshell a big part of our view so uh so we're gonna find today we're about 150 years removed from the death of joshua approximately 1245 bc somewhere in there um And so we're going to begin to look at this period where the Midianites come down and begin to do some damage. I actually want you I want to open up to Judges chapter six as we jump into this. And we're actually going to start in verse one because there's just too much good stuff to skip over and to get to 11. So let's open up to Judges. So on the one hand, um, the book of Judges can be rather depressing. On the other hand, it can be rather encouraging to see how that God is continuously reaching out to his people. So let's start in verse one and we're going to read this together and I'm going to do a little bit of running commentary. uh, But I want you guys to feel free to, to interject and ask questions. So starting in verse 1, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so this is going to be one of our patterns. The people of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. You could, this first section of Scripture between 1 and 10, you could almost divide it as the problem and then the solution. Actually, all the way down to verse 24, the problem the solution. So the problem starts off with, Israel did evil, right? And so the Lord, in response to their evil, delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. This is one of the issues that we see on the pages of Scripture, is that God is not just passive in history. God is actively moving pieces around. And and we it's hard for us to grasp this, but he takes Midian, a pagan people, brings them and actually delivers Israel over to them. These are active verbs, right? God delivered them over. It's like he takes Israel. Israel's in a basket. He takes Israel, says to Midian. Here you go. You take Israel and you will now do what you wish. Um, verse two, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made for themselves dens, the caves, the strongholds which are in the mountains. Very interesting passage. So at this point, Israel now has to become cave dwellers. They're in dens. They're in strongholds. And in um, one of the things we always need to try to look for in literature is little time indicators. We've got the narrator speaking to us, <clears throat> not directly to us. They're speaking to an original audience, right? And and so the narrator is speaking to this original audience and saying, you know those those caves and dens that you guys, if you guys go on a little hike up in the mountains and you find these caves and stuff? Well, that's where they used to stay. So there's a time period that the narrator is narrating about something in the past, Right. And you see these indicators throughout the book of Judges. The narrator will say things like, to this day. Keep looking for those phrases, to this day. It just reminds us that this is being spoken to an original audience about a time in the past. And it's always a good hermeneutical principle to remember. It's not just the Holy Spirit given us the scripture. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through a writer or narrator to an original audience that has now been preserved for us today. So in verse three, so it was when Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. So there seems to be kind of a coalition here. We've got Midianites, Amalekites, and then these peoples of the east, and they would particularly come up at what time? Yeah, so we've got the harvest period. Then, verse 4, they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. This is kind of a scorched earth warfare. Anybody remember like the first Gulf War? And, um, and when Saddam Hussein's armies were being moved out, what did they do? Yeah, they just started burning all the oil. No, they they were doing this t- for themselves. <clears throat> in this case, the enemies were coming in and and trying to get rid of all the food and and really trying to starve Israel to death. Right? Kind of reminded me of what's that uh, that children uh, children's movie Ants? You know, when you're a parent, you watch a lot of children's movies, <laughs> right? And the grasshoppers are always flying in. You know, on their helicopters or their motorcycles, so to speak. Yeah. But is it bugs life? OK, it's bugs life. So they come in every time, you know, they're supposed to have, you know, seeds gathered for the evil grasshoppers at the grasshoppers. And so they come flying in. And so here the Midianites come in and like locusts. In fact, to uh, so look at verse five. Uh, for they would come up with their own livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Because their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. Um, Okay, so this is the problem. And when we look at the problem, it it starts with Israel committing evil, right? They stop worshiping the Lord. They're now probably, as as we've seen in previous contexts, worshiping false gods. God delivers them into the hands of a pagan people who does not worship God. So that's so that's an act of deliverance. Then it's not just God's sovereignty, but there's also human agency. The Midianites are really doing things by their own will. They're coming in during harvest time, destroying everything, scorching the earth, trying to starve the Israelites. And the Israelites are hiding up in the hills. They're in dens. They're in caves. And so this is the problem. Um, it can legitimately be asked in such a context. Um, why? How is it that God can use an evil people to punish his own people? There's also things that could be raised theologically about human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Right. We've, we've seen this in the past. Uh, but clearly, if we're if we're just taking the text at face value, it's not just something that happened. It's something that God did. He delivers Israel into the hands of the Midianites. And yet the Midianites are a pagan, sinful people. Um, so now let's, let's look at verse 7. We begin to see part of the solution. And it came to pass when children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. Stop right there. So they cry. out. This is another part of the cycle. They now cry out to the Lord. So seven years of repression has, has occurred. They cry out to the Lord. They cry out to Yahweh. Uh, And uh, verse 8, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. This prophet, uh, in this context, is there any evidence of what this prophet's name is? No? No, just some prophet. We have no idea what the name of the prophet is. But part of God's response to the Israel crying out is to send a prophet. And the prophet says to them, thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hands of those who oppress you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What's going on here in this context? The prophet is revealing, thus says the Lord's speech. And how would this ring on the ears of the Israelites? How do you think they would feel after hearing this prophecy in their situation? Yeah, Gary, then we'll come to Joe. Say it again. Okay, so it could be that they're feeling that God's about ready to abandon them. Okay, Joe? Okay, so yeah, wow, we. Okay, yeah, we remember. That's right. Okay, we remember that. This is everything that you did for us, and yet here we are again. Okay, so they're looking for encouragement. God sends a prophet and they're being reminded of their feelings. Okay, that could be. Um, Let me ask you a question. Could it be, um, you know, as the prophet opens up his mouth, he says, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel. I, notice a a lot of the, just the first person speech here of God speaking, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and brought you to the house out of bondage. I delivered you. Um, I, I, I. And, um, and I don't want you to fear the gods of the Amorites. Uh, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what I sense that is coming out of this prophecy is God reminding Israel who God is, that he is all powerful. Remember? Don't you guys remember? I did all this stuff. Think of the Midianites. Compare them to the Egyptians. Look what I did to the Egyptians. I did this. And then I re- and then I said, "Don't fear the gods of the Amorites, but you have not obeyed my voice." So <clears throat> there seems to be a reminder of God's power, and uh, there seems to be a reminder of His of His love, but also there is a there is a reminder of you have you fallen back. Um, I don't know about you, but if if you play uh, any of you guys play athletics. Um, if you I don't know if you've ever been on a team that just seems to be, um, just cleaning everybody's clocks. I've I've coached a few teams where it just seems like game after game after game we're winning, and then all of a sudden you play a game and you get beat, and it's the first time the team has ever gotten beat. And I'll tell you that's that's a, it can be a real key point of the season when you get beat for the first time. All of a sudden. <clears throat> your players can suddenly forget that they won the first 10 games and, and even that team that they just lost to, they've beat them a couple of times in the past and they can start to reel and start to doubt and just be like, Oh man, what's happening. And, and maybe they lost because they made some mistakes. They made some bad decisions. And what's a coach to do? Well, one of the things a coach needs to do is remind them, Hey, you guys, you guys were undefeated before this game. We've lost one game, right? You guys have just done a, you guys have. Uh, you guys have. There's a lot of season left. You guys have beat these guys in the past, and so you got to remind them of what's happened, um, as well as try to figure out. Okay, what was it that we did wrong? How can we correct this? Um, any USC fans here at all? Or all right, yeah. USC had a. You know, they didn't start too well, uh, but they ended up ending ending very well. And so, this. So part of God's solution, at, or part of the solution in this section, is first of all. Israel cries out. Remember that place of weeping that we talked about last week, book book is there seems to be a theme in the book of judges and really throughout the scriptures is when God's people humble themselves and cry out when they come to the place of weeping, God is right there ready to meet them. Remember we see in first Peter, God resists the proud but gives what grace to the humble. So here, Israel had exalted themselves in their pride, began to worship false gods. But as soon as they cry out, boom, God's sending, first of all, a prophet to set them up and remind them. Now, the next part of God's solution, we look at verse 11. And this is where our, our curriculum kicks off. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, uh, no relation to Oprah of today, which belonged to Joash. Um, uh, the Abbey is right. Um, while his son Gideon <clears throat> threshed wheat in the wine press, in order to hide it from the Midianites. Uh, I just, I don't know. I, I love one of the things I love about reading scripture is there's some things that some themes that are so familiar because it's about human beings and there's some things that are so foreign because this is a different culture um at least you know for me having grown up in the city i've you know i have no idea what it means to thresh wheat i've never done it right and to thresh wheat in a wine press until you know uh, Until I start looking up some resources, I have no idea what's talking about. I I have I have no idea even how to envision this, but you need to think about a wine press as some kind of above ground spa thing that's unfilled, right? So think of something that maybe has four walls. It's above ground. It's unfilled at this point. And so normally you would be out in public threshing your wheat. Like you, you get a threshing floor, you get some stones, you're out beating the wheat <clears throat> um, where everybody can see, perhaps on a hill so that the wind can blow and blow the chaff. Um, you know The chaff's going to be light, the wheat's going to be heavy, the wind's going to help blow away the chaff, and then you're going to have the wheat left behind. The only reason to be getting into your spa or getting into your wine press is you don't want anybody to see you Threshing the wheat and it's going to be a lot harder because there's no wind to blow the chaff away and in a wine press you're not necessarily going to get your huge old stone down there to start rolling around on the wheat. Does that kind of make sense or think of a, a, a swimming pool that's completely empty but the point is is that Gideon is trying to hide the fact that he's trying to get food for his family. Uh, from the Midians, Midianites who had come in, who were coming in to basically try to destroy all of the food, so the angel of the Lord appears <clears throat> and to Gideon who 's hiding uh, trying to get food for his family, but he 's hiding while he 's doing it, verse twelve, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, "The Lord is with you, you mighty men of valor that 's a very interesting pronouncement. Um, Now, there could be some things that the Lord knows about Gideon that we don't know in the narrative yet. All we know in the narrative so far is that Gideon is hiding while he's threshing wheat. But the angel shows up and says, come on, bulldog, let's do this. You know, you have got you've got what it takes. You are a mighty man of valor. Verse 13, Gideon said to him. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So Gideon is expressing how he feels. But there could be a chance that he's also communicating something that was a common sentiment in Israel at this time. We don't know who all heard that prophecy from that was just previously pronounced. Um, Was that prophecy pronounced? Does it say in the context? It just says. The Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. So that would seem to imply what the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. What would that seem to imply as far as the scope of the prophecy? Yeah, so it seems like in some sense, the prophet, was he a traveling prophet saying the same message all around Israel? Did he pronounce it to the leaders and then the leader sent out the message? It seems like this message would have been broadcast fairly broadly to the people of Israel. Uh, But Gideon either hasn't heard that prophecy or he's heard it and he, but he hasn't yet embraced it. He hasn't come back to embracing what, uh, what was being pronounced. Um, he is still reciting this mantra of the Lord has left us. If the Lord is really with us, why am I threshing wheat in a wine press? Why? Why are the Midianites continually coming in and using this scorched earth policy to keep us up in the caves, to keep us in dens? Um, This you get the impression, don't you, that this is a difficult existence that Gideon and his are experiencing. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Does anything strike you strange about that verse? Yeah, go Yeah. You know, so the angel Lord shows up and says, You mighty men of valor. And he says, Oh, uh, Lord, if the Lord's with us, why is all this happening to us? Where's all the miracles? The Lord is surely forsaking us because we're under the hand of the Midianites. He turns to and says, go in this might of yours. That just doesn't seem like an appropriate response. Yeah, Joe. Oh, good point. Yeah, so, you know, maybe the angel showing angel Lord showing up and. And perhaps Gideon is one of the few that are actually taking the chance to be out in their wine press threshing the wheat, Um, whereas others are still are hiding in their caves. That could be. Yeah, maybe maybe he's the one that's out there Um, or. Yeah, that could be or or maybe, you know, the Lord is seeing something that's there in Gideon, even though it's not it doesn't seem to be. On the surface, you know, and Gideon's resp- reply doesn't seem to be a reply of a mighty one. Uh, and yet here uh, the angel saying, go in this might of yours, you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So there's this pronouncement now over Gideon. You are going to be <clears throat> the deliverer. So verse 15, he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. A lot of layers going on here. we got Ephraim and Manasseh, right? These were children of Joseph. Out of Ephraim and of Manasseh, who was the literal firstborn? Anybody remember? Say it again. Manasseh was the literal firstborn, but who got the rights of the firstborn? Ephraim. So this is one of those little switcheroo things that was always happening, seems to be happening in the Old Testament, right? Is Manasseh was the literal firstborn, but Ephraim gets the blessing. And so so Gideon's not even from Ephraim's tribe. He's from Manasseh. And not just in Manasseh, he's from the weakest clan in Manasseh. And he's the least, he says, in his father's house. Um, this could be viewed in a lot of different ways. It could be viewed as Gideon is lacking in proper self-esteem, right? Or he could be laughing, lacking in, um, you know, just feels weak. It could be just an honest expression of humility, you know, that he just understands where his place is, Um uh, but there, there's clearly he's there's not there's clearly that he doesn't feel like he is a mighty one. He doesn't feel like, yeah, you're right. You, you picked the right guy. God, you know, angel of the Lord shows up and says, I'm your man. No, he doesn't. He doesn't sense that at all. Verse 16. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So another pronouncement. The Lord will be with him for 17. Then he said. If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Why? Why would Gideon want a sign that it is the Lord talking with him? What could be some possibilities? Say it again. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, this could be very new in a lot of ways. Yeah, Wade? Right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So it could be that Gideon. He, he recognizes the um, the heft of what is being asked to do. It, that's great. That you're telling me that I'm going to be the deliverer. I want to make sure that you're really you're really the God who you claim to be. Um, if you know anything about the history of false religions. So many false religions start with what an appearance of an angel, Joseph Smith, Mohammed. Um, all these false religions start with some sort of apparent revelation and then people run off uh, with this revelation. So I don't know there to me. And you, you could correct me if if you think I'm wrong, there would seem to be now at this point in redemptive history, he doesn't have. A, a Bible that he can go check this out with. Let me go check the scriptures. Let me be like the brands. Let's see if these things are so this is just uh, an, a messenger that appears under the Tiberinth t- tree and says, here's almighty oh, man of valor. Here's what you're going to do. And so this first question to me seems to be legitimate. I want to make sure you really are Yahweh or Yahweh's representative. We'll talk about what angel of the Lord means here in a second. Um, So uh, do not depart from here. He says in verse 18, um, I uh, I pray until I come to you and bring out my offering set before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread and an of flour. The meat he put in a basket. He put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under uh, the terebinth tree and presented them. Now, just to get a sense of the time of this, Gideon didn't walk in, open up the fridge, stick uh, something in the microwave, and then bring it out about five minutes later, right? Preparing a goat, what do you got to do to prepare a goat? You got to kill the goat. You got to skin it, drain the blood, cook it. I don't know how long it takes to cook a goat, but you got to you know, get all the organs out of it. Um, then you've got you know the flour, the oil. So we're, this is a... Hefty, ancient meal preparation period. So, so the angel of the Lord is hanging out under the tree. Gideon comes, <clears throat> presents this stuff before uh, the angel of the Lord. And um, verse 20, then the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the oven bread and lay them on this rock, pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. The impression that you get at the end of this phrase is not that the angel of the Lord just kind of slowly walked away into the horizon, but the impression you get is that the angel of the Lord disappeared. He puts a staff, consumes the offering, and then disappears. Now notice Gideon's reaction compared to what he had, his reactions were before. Verse 22, now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Uh, verse 23, the Lord said, to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. This is a very common reaction when people interface with the angel of the Lord. They're not just high-fiving. They don't go and give them a big hug. They're like, I will die. And so once he realizes that this really was the Lord's representative, and as we're going to see here, actually the Lord himself, um, his sense is there's so much sense of holiness. I am so, we're implying here, so sinful and so human. Uh, I deserve death. Look back at verse 14 and then 16. So remember the way this scene starts off. It's the angel of the Lord that shows up under a terebinth tree. Gideon seems to be interacting with him much the way Abraham was interacting with those three angels back in Genesis 18. And so but in verse 14, it says, then the Lord turned to him. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, this is pretty common when we see the angel of the Lord is, is time, it, the Lord will show up. And then the angel of the Lord will say, thus says the Lord, or we'll say. I say to you and and right here in 14 and 16, it calls the angel of the Lord, the Lord. And so this is what leads Bible interpreters, theologians for many, many centuries to view this as what we would call a theophany. That means uh, an appearance of God himself in pre-incarnate form. Um, So in, in Genesis 18 and 19, there's three messengers that show up. And and they actually sit down in front of Abraham and they eat in front of him and then two of them take off and then Abraham begins to go into this prayer before the third person right that's left behind and and calls him Lord and in this case we've got angel of the Lord the Lord and then when the sacrifice is consumed. Normally, if there's any sort of not just normally all the time, if if a human being tries to offer any form of worship to an angel in the Bible, what is the universal response? Get up. Get up do not do that. Do not worship me. We see it in Revelation. We see it in the uh, where else the book of Acts, I believe. Wait. Yeah, Revelation. We don't you just don't worship. You don't worship angels. In this case, the angel receives the offering, burns it up. And um, and so that would seem to corroborate the idea that this is a theophany where people would call this a Christophany is because the Bible says no one has seen the Lord uh, and no one can see the Lord in his essence. And so it's at least suggested that Christ would be the representative of the Trinity that would be revealing himself in pre-incarnate form in the Old Testament coming in the full incarnation in the New Testament. Again, that's a lot of systematic connections. I don't know how much we can insist that this is Christ in the second person as this theophany. But definitely this is the Lord appearing in some sort of pre-incarnate physical form here in the book of Judges. We're going to see it later, too, in the book of Judges. Any questions on that? This whole angel of the Lord stuff actually one of the it's one of the indicators and pointers towards the Trinity Uh, it's it's part of what builds towards that doctrine when we're looking at from the Old Testament right so let's let's go back over to verse 24 so Gideon is comforted now the angel of the Lord has left we would assume that in verse 23 now Gideon is hearing a voice from the Lord. It doesn't say that directly, but the appearance of the Lord is left, and yet he's still hearing from the Lord. Verse 24. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. And to this day, it is still an opera of the Abiezrites. So the original readers could go to this place and see where that altar was built. To me, I just find that kind of stuff fascinating. The author, the narrating says, go over there and you can find it to this day. Let's continue uh, verse 25. Now it came to pass uh, the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bowl and offer the burnt sacrifice with wood of the image, which you shall cut down. Um, let's just stop right there and let's contemplate what Gideon's being asked to do. At this point in Israel's history, is the dominant religion Judaism or Baal worship? It's clearly Baal worship. So much so, even his own dad has an altar to Baal right there on the family property. And so Gideon is now being commanded, go destroy your father's Baal worship, the the altar that's made to Baal, and kill one of your father's bulls and now create an altar for Yahweh. What if God were to come to you and say, I'm a... I want you to go to uh, Saudi Arabia, and I'm going to command you to go. As, no, let's send you to, is Mecca in Saudi Arabia? Okay, let's, let's send you to Mecca, and we're going to have you go into one of the mosques, and I want you to basically go in there and demolish the mosque. And in its place, I'd like you to build a church. Yeah, that's that's something else. Um, We see this kind of stuff in church history. I don't know if you guys have ever read a character named Raymond Lull. Anybody any Raymond Lull fans? Okay, he is a a, he's a pre-Reformation missionary. Uh, Let me think here around the twelve hundreds who learned Arabic better Than anybody of his age, even though Arabic was his second language, uh, people, the Turks and and people in Arabia would say that there was virtually no accent in his Arabic. He was an Arabic scholar. He was from Spain and he would and he I think one of his first missionary trips was when he was in his 60s and he basically just went in traveling around Arabic lands. He would stand up upon uh, a box and proclaim Allah as a false God and command everybody repent and follow Jesus Christ. Raymond Lowell. And he saw people converted. He saw people come to know Christ. There were many times he had to run for his life. Uh, many times where he was out of the country because he'd get sick. His last time coming into the country was in his 70s. He did finally get killed. After he had led many, many, many uh, Muslims uh, to Christ. Uh, this I'll have to double check the ex- exact year. He's in uh, what would be called the medieval period. So when you're studying medieval church history, he's one of the last guys that you study in medieval church history. So it's before the Reformation starts getting kicked off. Um, well, to use the word Catholic is, is kind of difficult because we were all Catholics in the medieval period, right? And so, uh, so yes, he's, he's out preaching the gospel, uh, and he is, seems he's preaching repentance and stuff, but there is some, some trappings and some of the stuff that he's sharing. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems like he was just preaching repentance towards, you know, repentance and faith, um, and paid the price for it. Then you have guys like, I'm not a big fan of St. Francis of Assisi, but he would walk right in the middle of these battles. So just hold up his hand and say, stop, stop, stop right in the middle when they're having warfare. And then he would start preaching to both sides. And these just a, and they, and the Muslims thought, uh, the sultans, they have this tradition where they think that crazy people must be prophets. And so when he came out right in the middle of the warfare, they said, this guy must be a prophet. He's so crazy. And so the sultan brought him into his palace and listened to him preach the gospel. Never became a Christian, but he was just like, who are you? Please tell me what you have to say f- from God to me. And so that was Saint Francis. CCA. Um, one of my favorite characters. I was trying to remember his name earlier, and now I've, I've forgotten. It was the missionary that came in to Europe and basically chopped the tree down of that was the tree to Thor? Do you guys remember that story? There's a big tree that was made to the god Thor. He walks into town and says, "I'm going to chop this tree down. If and if Thor's real, he'll strike me dead." And he chops the tree down, and everybody's sitting around waiting for thunder to come down and destroy him. Nothing happens. And so then the whole town gets converted to Christianity. So these types of stories are not, it's not like this never happens, but it is pretty crazy that the Lord is asking Gideon to basically destroy this altar to Baal. So what does he do? Uh, In in verse 27, Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord said to him. This tells you a couple things. Gideon is a man of property and and that the job that God was commanding him to do wasn't something he could do by himself. We're talking about a pretty large altar that if you wanted to get it all done in one night, it would take many men. And so, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too, uh, uh, too much to do it by day, he did it by night. All right, so... Gideon's bold, but he does it by night. I wouldn't necessarily call him a pansy, Um, but he goes out. and He does what the Lord commanded. Um, And so what happens? Verse 28, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, uh, their altar was uh, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wood image that was beside it was cut down. The second bowl was being offered on the altar, which had been built. And so they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. So somehow they, you know, I don't know how secretive you can be in the middle of the night with 10 men chopping down an altar and then cutting up a bowl. The the bowl obviously is making noise as it's being cut up and dyed and stuff like that. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Now, the wooden image, some of your translations probably say Asherah pole. Is that right? Okay, so what you have here is the Baal. Remember, Baal is kind of like the male deity. The Asherah pole is to the female aspect, kind of the opposite of Baal, right? There's the female deity, and then there's the male deity. So they kind of both go, in together, they go together. This is probably, uh, even though it's it's on Joash's property, it's probably on a hill somewhere. Uh, it would be one of these place, things that we would call a high place. You see this in the Old Testament. And, um, and so you, when you first read this, the jury's kind of out. Okay, what's Joash going to do here? Because Joash clearly has an altar on his property. His son has destroyed it. Angered the neighbors, what does joash do verse thirty one but Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for baal? <clears throat> would you save him? Let the one who pleads for him put to death be put to death by mourning. Wow, so I guess Joash was not a true believer in Baal, if this is his reaction um And he's a pretty bold guy himself. Uh, If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him uh, 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 Jerubal, saying, let Baal uh, plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Then all the uh, Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abor-Israelites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who all gathered behind him. And he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. These are other tribes of Israel, and they came to meet them. So now the stage has been set. We had the problem. Israel had fallen into evil. God and and God sent the Midianites uh, to to oppress them. But then they cry out to the Lord. They humble themselves. God basically brings a solution in what seems to be three different waves. Right. First wave is what? A prophet brings a prophet. Then after the prophet, we don't know how much time elapses, but then he sends whom? Angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord <clears throat> speaks to Gideon. And so Gideon is the next part of that solution. Gideon becomes the deliverer. Gideon's afraid, but the Lord says, hey, I am the Lord. Consumes the sacrifice. Gives him an initial test. Okay, let's give you, a, let's give you something small before you, we give you something big. Go destroy the altar of Baal on your father's property. We don't know why Joash had this altar. Maybe he was just trying to be ecumenical. You know, maybe he really had a heart for Jehovah. But it's like, well, if we're going to be good neighbors, we've got that hill over there and our neighbors are going to want to have a, an altar to to Baal. And so we'll go ahead and play the part. Um, whatever happened, Joash seems to turn pretty quick either to defend his son Or it really reveals his true heart is, you know what? I've been wanting to get rid rid of that thing for a long time. Now my son has finally risen up and done it. And then he stands up before the whole city and says, if you're going to stand for bail, you will be dead by morning. It's a pretty big turn of events. Um, And now there's this rallying point and you get the feeling that, you know, warfare is coming and the big verse and you probably circle this in your Bibles, verse 34. uh, But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And so in this section, we have the Lord sending the Midianites. And by the end of this section of scripture, we have the spirit of the Lord falling upon Gideon. God is involved in in the whole thing. Um, And so let me go back to kind of our main question that we start with at the beginning. Why did God choose Gideon? Why do you think God chose Gideon? Yeah, Nate. Yeah, that's a great answer. God, it, it's very common for God to choose the weak to demonstrate his own power. Um, God's eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole world to see those whom he can show himself mighty on their behalf. Right. And <clears throat> We, it, there doesn't seem to be. I don't know that Gideon was like just a super super righteous guy. Um, he definitely seems to come from a family that had some moxie, but I don't know that you could argue that he was already out there busting up altars. Um, he doesn't seem to be a kind of already in his in his approach to life. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys uh I used to be a Dodger fan and then I turned my back on them when they traded Mike Piazza. But back in the day, um they had a pitcher Oral Hershiser, Anybody remember Oral Hershiser. And if you listen to Tommy Lasorda talk about Oral Hershiser's story, uh, Tommy Lasorda would say that Oral Hershiser actually had some confidence problems when he was a younger pitcher that he was getting he would get bombed and 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 there were some confidence issues. But Tommy Lasorda nicknamed him Bulldog. And and he just drilled that into oral suicide. He kept calling him Bulldog. And he told everybody that he was a bulldog. And later on, when he asked Tommy Lasorda, why did you do that? He said, because I needed him to become a bulldog. And so he called him a bulldog in order to make him a bulldog. And the angel of the Lord, the Lord shows up and God knows what he's going to do. And here's a guy that's just feeling like we've been abandoned by God. I'm hiding in this wine press, threshing wheat to feed my family. Where is God? He has left us. Uh, who am I? I'm from Manasseh. I'm not even from Ephraim. I'm the weakest in my family. <clears throat> the Lord comes along, takes a guy just like that, who feels like I really can't do it. And he says, you mighty warrior of God. And so what is God doing? He's He's <clears throat> He's trying to instill within Gideon this identity that of who his God really is and in that I think there are some really impressive lessons for each of us and this might be as far as we get today and that is that when God looks at his people he looks at the church today there's no doubt the impression that you get in the New Testament that's very similar to the Old Testament in the Old Testament God looks at Israel and he says I did not choose you because you were mightier Stronger, more righteous. I chose you to demonstrate my mercy and power for my own name's sake. How many times in the Old Testament do you see God saying, I will fulfill my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for my name's sake? And then when Jesus goes to call these 12 disciples, you get no impression that these guys are just really super intelligent and they've got all these gifts and, boy, they're strategists. Uh, boy they 've got just it they 've got it all pegged out for how they 're going to grow the church in ninety days or less. No Jesus comes and picks fishermen who are unstudied, untutored, and begins to fill them with the spirit and to fill them with this identity of who their God was and as christians <clears throat> i don 't know that God is so much calling upon us to think of ourselves in and of ourselves as this Mighty people that's going to take the earth by storm and and we're going to see the gospel spread throughout the world because we've had the proper strategies and we've we're just the smartest and and we've got the best technology and so on and so forth. Now God takes the weak to confound the wise it's the fools that overturn uh, things of this world and and so you see this theme over and over again we won't be able to talk about this in this lesson, but then God begins to send Gideon out to the big, you know, uh, task that was before him. And what does he, what does he do? It, you know, we have, what is it? Uh, 20, was it 30 something thousand people that gather? And then he cuts off 20, 22,000 leave. They say, uh, we're, you know, if anybody's afraid, you can leave. 22,000 leave, so he's left with 10,000. And then there's this really strange test. Let's have all these soldiers go and get a drink of water at the lake. And if anybody kind of bends down and gets a lake, kind of like a normal Israelite soldier, you know, putting their mouth to the ground, gets on their knees, then they're out. But if for some reason they get water in their hand and then begin to lap it like a dog, then they're in. And only the fact that only 300 out of 10,000 will lap like a dog says, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> I don't know about you, but if, if you've ever gone, uh, if you ever do any, you know, backpacking or something like that, and maybe you're really back there in the woods and. And, uh, there's times where I've gotten down in a stream. If I know there's no cows in this area, there's no, uh, is that gerardia or anything like that? Seasons water. Yeah. Seasoned water. Uh, you yeah, know, get down there and I, I might pick up some water and bring it up and cup it like a cup. <clears throat> but I think the only, I'm trying to think in recent times, the only, uh, human being I've seen lap like a dog is my son, Samuel. There's, I have seen him with rainwater in the backyard get down and lap like a dog probably because he saw the cat lapping his water, or his water and would imitate our cat but nobody would look at that behavior and say I want you in my military <laughs> you, know, you know we're training some special ops in order to qualify for our special ops this is a black op operation you must lap like a dog No way the impression I'm we'll we'll come back this next week. I'm kind of wondering, I don't know if any commentators say this, did they have, did these 900 have some, some mental issues? Did their mama drop them when they were kids? I'm not sure why they would do that. Um, If you guys can do some research and and try to figure that out, why would they do this type of thing? So God's going to take very strange, odd behavior, take those 300 people put Gideon out on the Midianites and he's going to accomplish an amazing victory for the people of Israel all so that he gets the glory. So who is the, who is the hero of our story today? God, God is the hero. And, um, and, and we are And one of the things that we see here on the pages of scripture is that no matter how dark times might seem, when God's people just turn and take one step and cry out, God is there. He's ready to lift up again. And things can seem incredibly dark, and then all of a sudden it can just turn on a dime. If it, if God's hand is in it. I don't want to I'm not I'm not you know going to make a big political statement or anything like that in this in this lesson. Uh But it it was befuddling to me that in the inauguration, there were more invocations than any other time in the history of the United States. There were six invocations that were delivered. Lots of scripture read. And then Franklin Graham, who is not even there. There are Christian conferences that don't want Franklin Graham on their platform because of his stance on certain issues. Shows up and reads first Peter chapter two and says, we need to pray for all leaders and says, because, you know, God desires all men to be saved. And there is no, only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now, I know that not everyone on that platform were all conservative evangelical Christians that believe in the Bible. But that's befuddling to me. If you had asked me like two months ago, would Franklin Graham be on the platform during our invocation reading first Timothy chapter two? I would have said you were crazy. Um, But that was I don't know about you, but I got a little bit of a shiver down my spine to see Franklin Graham up there reading that passage uh, from the scriptures. Um, But again, that's just my personal opinion. Um, but who knows, maybe, maybe there's some, some shifting going on. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your sovereignty, your power, and your kindness. Lord, we look at Israel and we see so much of our own history. We see so much of ourselves. Um, we even in in the United States, we see periods of darkness and where, um, even the church seems to be running a foul and away from you. And then we see it crying out at different points in history. We see the great awakening in the 1700s, the second great awakening. Uh, And we see you pouring out your spirit many times throughout the history of your people, um, willing uh, to hear their cry to send prophets, to send deliverers and the ultimate delivered being Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that we have through him uh, we thank you that any at any time that we can turn from our sin and, and cry out to you in humility and that you are there ready to meet us. Lord, protect us for being those that would be stiff-hearted and, and proud and find ourselves uh, being resisted by you. And we pray that you would give us that place of weeping and crying out uh, so that we may walk in humility all the days of our lives. And we pray, Father, that we would see in our generation many, many uh, more come to Uh, tear down the altars in their hearts and to worship the true God of the universe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.